Hi, I'm Kathy. I am a part of our Women in the Word teaching team, and I get to be here to share with us about Romans chapter 7. I describe myself as a dreamer who was raised by a realist. You see, I love ideas. I love dreams. I love brainstorming. I even love being idealistic about my dreams. <laughs> my dad, however, is a realist, and he knew I needed to learn how to function in reality. You see, for a portion of his career, my dad was an air traffic controller at the Atlanta airport, busiest airport in the world. My dad is exactly who you want being responsible for your plane. He's responsible, incredibly intelligent, makes great decisions under pressure. He was a wonderful air traffic controller, and he knew the significance of me functioning in reality. Even Orville and Wilbur Wright, who created the airplane, had this idea, but they had to figure out how for it to function in reality. My dad was doing the same. He wanted your plane to take off to fly through the air as peacefully as possible, and to land successfully. And to do that, he needed to understand what the reality was, what the obstacles were, and how to respond to those obstacles so that you would have a successful flight. Many of the obstacles he had to deal with, I don't understand, but there are a few that he's talked about over the years that I can at least understand. One is wind direction. Based on what the wind direction was that day and possible wind shear, that would impact which runways were for departure and which runways were for arrival. Also, the type of aircraft, the specific aircraft that you were in, and how much weight was on that aircraft would impact the decisions that he would give to the pilot to take care of you. And also, he would consider the airspace. Once you were in the air, there were other aircraft there, and so there was a certain amount of space that they tried to keep between you and other aircraft. Because my dad wanted you to successfully take off, experience a peaceful flight, successfully land, and so he wanted to consider reality to deal with those obstacles. Last week, we were introduced to the idea of sanctification, and that's the ongoing process of us becoming more like Jesus. You may express that a different way. You may say, grow in obedience, grow in your love for Jesus, authentically walk with Jesus. Regardless of how you would describe that, my guess is that you want that flight to be successful. You want sanctification, walking authentically with Jesus to go well, and there are some obstacles that we encounter. And if we're not honest about those obstacles and deal with them, that impacts how successful we are or not, and that certainly impacts how peaceful our flight can go. So today, I want us to consider some things in Romans chapter 7 that are obstacles we may face so that we can respond well to them as we want to be sanctified. I'm going to ask you to think pretty deeply about some things because I think there are a lot of things going on that if we were aware of and knew how to respond to could be really helpful for us. In the beginning of Romans chapter 7, the first three verses are an illustration. And Paul talks about a married woman who is bound by law to her husband. And while he is alive and she is bound by law to him, for her to go and be with another would not be right. That would be adultery. However, if sadly he died, she would be released from that law of marriage, and therefore she would be free to go belong to another and to remarry. And so it's that idea of a death and a new belonging or new relationship 
that is meant to undergird us as we read verses 4 through 6. So read with me. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law. See that death there? The law cannot save us. Jesus has come. Things are different. The law is not our primary means of purification. And we have to die to that, die to that idea that we are purified or right or have value or are safe by keeping the law. Jesus has come, and so things are different. Through the body of Christ, we die to the law so that we can belong to another. A death has occurred so a new belonging can happen to him who's been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. So what was it like living under the law? Verse 5, while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bring fruit for death. But there's a contrast. When you belong to Jesus, what is it like? But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. This word law is mentioned a lot in Romans, in Romans 7, and in the Scripture. And to be honest, it can mean a variety of different things depending upon the context. It can mean something like a principle, a concept, or an idea. Also, as it often does in Romans 7, it can refer to the Mosaic law, to the specific laws that God gave to Moses for the nation of Israel, whereby they were to guide them in pure living. Sometimes the law in Romans 7 here refers to all the law and the commandments that are given in the Torah in the first five books of the Bible. The key is that we have to die to keeping the law, keeping the rules as a means of our purification. In order to begin a relationship with Jesus, that is something that is significant. Now, the law is not bad. In fact, the law is very good. Jesus made very clear that the law wasn't bad. It's just some things are different now. In Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says this, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus fulfills a law that we cannot. So what was life like under that law? We saw it in the text. One, it held us captive in verse 6. In verse 5, we see sinful passions are aroused by the law. And in verse 5, it bears fruit for death. Captivity to the law stirs up the flesh to produce sin and deadly fruit in us. Thankfully, there's a contrast. As Christians, we get to experience something different. In verse 6, it says we're not in captivity, but we are released by the law. In verse 4, we get to belong to another and we bear fruit for God. A Christian is free to serve in the Spirit and produce living fruit for God. To illustrate that, I want to tell you how I experienced some of those things in my own life. I am a type A perfectionist. I don't like a rule, but if you give it to me, I want to keep it, and I want to keep it better than everyone else. I grew up in a family that keeping the rules and doing the right thing was very important. That's a great thing. And to be honest, as a child, you're kind of rewarded in life by the adults in school or in your family if you keep the rules. You feel safer and valued and more secure and loved if you keep the rules. Upon closer reflection, though, it was incredibly difficult for me. I was pretty miserable because I knew that I couldn't even keep all the adults' rules, and I definitely was unable to keep all of God's rules. 
And when you can't keep all of them and you know you're falling short, there's some fruit for death that comes in your life. There was a whole lot of fear and there was a whole lot of anxiety because I couldn't keep the law. Additionally, sometimes I would just double down and think I will do better. But that just drew up pride and self-righteousness in me. And when you're full of fear, anxiety, pride, and self-righteousness, you're not particularly loving and bearing kind fruit for people around you. But when I was in middle school, an evangelist named Billy Graham came to my town. And for the first time, I heard the gospel. Some of it I was familiar with. I knew I was a sinner. I knew I wasn't perfectly keeping the law. Didn't know how bad my sin was, but I knew I was a sinner. I'd heard that Jesus had died on the cross and was raised again. Definitely didn't understand that fully, but that wasn't news to me. The news was that I could be right with God. I could be pure. I could have a security and a value and be loved, not by keeping any rules at all but just by believing in what Jesus had done for me on the cross to save me. And I have to tell you, to this point in my life, I have never heard anything more freeing. That radically changed my life. And though I'm not perfect, there is fruit for life. There is peace. There is more humility than there used to be. And I am able to actually love and care for others because Jesus came and freed me and gave me a purity that I didn't and couldn't earn. And I believe all of that 100%. The reality is that I still wrestle with my sinful flesh, and there's still a part in me that thinks for me to feel safe and secured and loved and valued, I need to be sure I keep all the rules or God's going to be mad at me. I still wrestle with that need within myself to keep a law to feel safe. And Elizabeth Elliot says this. She says, where does your security lie? Is God your refuge, your hiding place, your stronghold, your shepherd, your counselor, your friend, your redeemer, your savior, your guide? If he is, you don't need to search any further for security. I was at Urban Air Trampoline Park about a month ago with a friend of mine whose kids were jumping on the trampoline, and I was talking about how deeply I wrestle with that need to keep the rules to feel valuable. And she is a counselor by training, and she said, Kathy, every person that's ever come into my office is also looking for safety and security. And whether Christian or not, they're trying to keep some set of rules to feel better about themselves or to feel like they fit in. She said people look at their workplaces, their families, their organizations, and they look at the written and unwritten rules, and they think, what do I have to wear or say or think or do to be safe and valued here. I understand that it is a battle for me and perhaps for some of you. And that reminder that my identity is in Christ, I get to walk in freedom not because of any rule I do or have ever kept, but because of what Jesus has done for me. I don't have to do any works, I just get to belong to him. And that is what enables me to bear fruit in my life. That is a battle I face, and if I'm not aware of it while I am flying in the air on my sanctification journey, then I'm not going to be able to remember the truth and respond to it well. I want to go ahead and also make an essential clarification. My dad and I growing up would throw the softball back and forth to each other in the front yard, and sometimes when you're throwing the softball, you, you miss. 
And sometimes when you miss, you have a tendency to look at your glove and kind of beat your glove as if the glove has done something wrong, right? <laughs> it's clearly the glove's fault that I missed the ball. We both know it's not the glove's fault, is it? It's the hand behind the glove connected to the brain that's a problem. And as we head into this next section, I think it's really important that we blame the right thing, because if we don't blame the right thing, then we can't address that. For example, the law is holy and righteous and good. There is absolutely nothing wrong with it. The law is not the problem. Isn't the law great? Wouldn't it be great if I never lied or never stole and we lived in a world that no one ever lied or stole? Wouldn't that be great? Every law God's given is really great. The law isn't the problem. What's the problem? The problem is sin. Sin is holy, evil, and deceptive. Sin is our problem. And as we read through this next section, it's really important that we remember that. Some of these phrases are going to be kind of tricky. Understand, we might interpret some things slightly differently. That's okay. I'm going to offer my suggestions. Hopefully put some things in context in Romans and in the scriptures that I hope we can kind of zoom out and see some things that will apply to us. Start reading with me in verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? No, the law is not sin. Yet if it hadn't been for the law, I wouldn't have known sin. For I have now have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Well, is he saying that he wasn't a sinner before he heard the law? No, throughout Romans, we've been learning that we were sinful from birth. But Paul is saying, once I saw the law, once I knew what it was and I could compare it to myself, I saw my sin more clearly. It caused me to know and see it more. And not just that, but in verse 8, it actually caused me to sin more. Read this. Sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness meaning knowing what the law is and that he wasn't supposed to do something at times just made him want to do it. Have you ever been caring for a child, maybe a preschooler or a toddler, and you told them because you love them and it's good for them and you wanted to keep them safe not to do something? And they may have never thought about doing that in their life, but the moment you tell them to do it, what is the only thing they're thinking about? I am going to do that just because you told me not to do it. And if they do it and get away with it, they're going to want to do it even more. And we can laugh at them, but at times that has been me. I see what God wants me to do, and I think, just because you've said so, no thanks. I, unfortunately, have stories of my life that would resonate with that. In verse 9, it says this, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive. I sinned more and I saw it, and that I died. Verse 10, the commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me, sin is very deceptive, and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Certainly when I was not a Christian, this was true of me, but because I still wrestle with the flesh, unfortunately, I still see some evidences of this in my life. Sin deceptively uses the law to entice my flesh and to cause me to sin. So I want to talk just a minute 
about just some of the ways that sin deceptively works in my life and can use the law to deceive me. I could spend all day on this. I'm just going to choose a handful. But if I want to be aware of what the challenges are as I'm trying to grow in sanctification, I need to be honest about how sin is deceiving me. Sometimes my sin is pretty straightforward. I'm going to take coveting as our example because it's mentioned in the text. Sometimes I see it, I covet it, I want it, I buy it. Pretty straightforward. Maybe I can afford it, maybe I can't. Either way, it's still coveting. But sometimes it goes a little deeper for me. It's kind of deceptive. I see something and I buy it, but I don't really care about that thing. But everybody I know has one in my workplace or my family or my friends, and I want to fit in. I'm coveting fitting in, so I buy it. It runs deeper for me. It's kind of a spider web. I'll give you some more examples. Sometimes I see something and I know I can't afford it. I'm not even sure I really want it, but I know I can't afford it. And as the day goes on, I start to think about it a little more, and all of a sudden I kind of want it. And then I get kind of irritated that I can't have it because I know I can't afford it. And then by the end of the day, I'm doubting God's goodness to me because I can't afford that thing. And to be honest, sometimes it's not a thing. Sometimes I look at you and you have an opportunity I want, and I covet it. I see a job you have or how the boss favors you more than she favors me. Or I see a relationship that you have or a friendship or a marriage, or a boyfriend, or I see a spiritual gift that you have. I'm not saying it's bad to necessarily want or ask for those things, but sometimes it crosses a line for me into coveting. I'll give you one more of many examples in my life. I'm going to kind of talk about it in an extreme and mock myself, but I think you'll get the point, and you can totally laugh at me because I will laugh at me. I hear, don't covet, and then I think, well, I'm going to be the best non-coveter in the history of the world. And I covet being the best at it. And I don't address my heart at all, but I come up with a list of rules of how I'm going to not covet better than you not covet. And I look at how often I eat out and how many outfits I have in my closet and all of the things of how I'm not going to covet better than you don't covet. Since deceptive. Those are just a few of many examples of how sin deceives me. And I need to know what they are so that I can respond to them and grow in sanctification. Well, so far I've told you the law is good, but I haven't really used it in any good ways. And you're probably wondering, I'm not so sure I'm resonating with this law is good thing. So I want to see, can we flip the script? Is there any way we can use the law for good? Read with me in verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. The law didn't bring death. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Look at verse 13. That sin might be shown to be sin. Here's the thing. The law can point out my sin, but because I'm a Christian and I have the Holy Spirit living in me, I have a choice. Am I going to let sin create more sin, or am I going to look at the law, point out my sin, acknowledge that it's sin, and instead take it to Jesus? What if I looked at my coveting and I thought, I don't really want that thing, but I sure am coveting security. 
and I want to fit in and feel good and safe here, and that's why I'm coveting. And what if I acknowledge that? And what if, like Elizabeth Elliot said, I went to the right place for security? What if I read Romans 8:38 and 39, which says, I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What if I saw what I was coveting and I went back to the person from whom I have total and complete security? And I tried to find what I was actually coveting in the person that has already given me that. Read James 1.25 with me. Another thing about the law, ways we can use it for good, but the one who looks intently into the perfect law, the law of liberty. That doesn't sound a whole lot what we've been reading here in Romans. So is there any way the law can bring liberty? What if we kept the law of liberty, persevered, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts? He will be blessed in what he's doing. Well, here's how looking at what God wants can bring me freedom. Because I'm experiencing and choosing sin, I can see that it's a problem and I can ask for forgiveness and be freed from it. And then I have the Holy Spirit to say, will you renew my heart? Will you change me? Will you help me walk in truth? And then I can look at the law, see what it says would honor God and what would please him. So then I can do it not to save myself, but because I actually want to please a person that I love. That is freeing. I think that idea is what's illustrated in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. It says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works. I am not saved by keeping any rules. I'm only saved by what Jesus did. But because I've been saved and my heart has been changed, what can happen? Verse 10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I can do what's good and right because my heart has changed. But remember where it started. It started on the flight, being honest about the obstacle, which isn't the law. The problem is my sin. But if I will focus on my sin, acknowledge what it is, see how the law is deceiving me, then there is an opportunity for me to address it. And that is a great thing. Because here's the thing, we're in a battle. An intense personal battle, verse 23, says it's a war. There's a war raging in me, um, a fierce internal battle that constantly raises within me. Uh, we are going to read this next section in Romans 7 in just a second at the end, but I want to read Galatians 5, 16, and 17 because it can paint a picture of some of the battle of the opposing sides but I say walk by the Spirit and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. I do have desires in my flesh, but they are against something. They're against the Spirit. And they're against the work the Spirit's doing in my life. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for they're opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. I think I experience this in some ways, like I eat a bowl of spaghetti noodles. They're all mixed up in there together. But I want to pull out the spaghetti noodles and look at it for a second separately, and then we're gonna put them back together. Because in verse 15, I see one spaghetti noodle that describes what happens with my sin and my battle with my flesh. 
In verse 15, it says, I don't understand. There is confusion that comes in my battle with my flesh. Verse 15 says, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I do disobey because of my sin. That's a part of my battle. And verse 18 says, I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. There is an inability in my flesh, by myself, on my own, to battle it. I can't do it. Sin does produce confusion, weakness, and disobedience in me. But that's not totally true anymore. Meaning, when I was not a Christian, there was no hope for that. But because I have the Holy Spirit, there's also some other things that are true. Here's this. Verse 15 says, I do the very thing I hate. Well, you know what that means? I really do hate my sin. I really do hate coveting. I'm not happy about it. I actually hate it. And that's a work of the Spirit of God. I didn't conjure that up on my own. Look at verse 22. I delight in the law of God. I actually really do delight in God's law. (laughs) I actually really do. One of the things that surprised me about this lesson is how much I have loved looking at the goodness of the law. What a great world it would be if I didn't covet and you didn't covet and we were all content and really grateful for what anyone else has. I actually really delight in that. I think it's beautiful. That's the spirit of God that I I really do delight in that. And you know what? I still sin. I still covet. But I've been clear that I'm, I'm actually better than I used to be. I don't covet as much as I used to. I'm not perfect, but there's been actual growth in my flight of sanctification as God has convicted me of coveting and taught me how to respond different and change my heart. Those are both really true. I was at lunch with a friend a couple weeks ago. We were talking about Romans 7. Shocker that if you've hung out with me recently, we may have talked about Romans 7. And we were talking about coveting in our life, and she began to tell me a story. And she said, you can use this in your lecture. I knew I was teaching today. And she said, uh, I said, okay, I said, I may use it, but I won't use your name. She told me to use her name, but I'm not throwing her under the bus. But she was telling me this story about coveting in her life, and she was talking about a a very, very good friend who had had uh, a death in the family, and they had gotten an inheritance. And it had been a very hard year, and my friend was really sad for her friend, And her friend was going to get to take a trip with her family because they had this inheritance and they hadn't gotten to take a trip in a long time and they were going to get to do it. And my friend was talking about how glad she was for her friend because she really loves her friend. But she said as the days went on, she started to think, my family can't afford a trip right now. I kind of wish I could take a trip. And she found herself coveting her friend. Then she would catch herself and be like, that's not good. I don't want to covet my friend. I'm actually really glad for her. I'm really glad. They're going to love this. I wouldn't even want to go where they're going. It's so great. They're going to get to bring these other friends with them, and it's going to be so fun. And then she thought, but I know those other friends too. And, And why didn't they invite us to come too? It was a battle, wasn't it? Read with me verses 14 onward, and I think you're going to resonate maybe with that story. Verse 14 says this, for we know that the law is spiritual. My friend knew not coveting was good. She agreed with that. But she also knew I'm of the flesh, sold under sin. She knew she wasn't perfect. She said, I don't understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want. Here I am coveting my friend, and I really hate that. 
Now, if I do not do what I want, I agree with the law, it's good. She agreed that not coveting was a good thing. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin dwells in me. I know that nothing good dwells in me that's in my flesh. I have the desire to not covet by the Spirit of God, but, and I want to do what's right, but sometimes I wrestle with carrying it out. For I don't do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I don't do what I want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be the law that when I want to do what is right, evil lies close at hand. But verse 22, I actually delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Here's the thing. We're in a battle. And actually, the New Testament is full of wartime language. If you think about how Nero persecuted and killed and was at war with the initial readers of this passage, they understood wartime language. They understood what war meant. And in the New Testament, for example, in 1 Peter 2, 11, it describes a war. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. The world, the flesh, and the devil are things we battle. We're at a war. Here's some other phrases. They aren't on your verse sheet, but I want to read them because of the wartime language that's in 1 Peter. Arm yourselves, gird your mind, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We're at war. Last week, I got to go be a part of Women in the Word at our South Campus. Super great women. Love them. They're amazing. Really enjoyed being there, genuinely. But I have to tell you, it's about a 30-minute drive from my house there down I-35. And to be honest, it was a battle in my head the whole way. It was just a battle that day. Why? I don't know. It was sin, worry, fear, anxiety, what if, rain it back in. Here's the truth, Kath. Here's who God is. Prayer, Holy Spirit, help me. Battle, battle, battle the whole way down there. Prayed as I got there, prayed there, went in, had a fantastic time. Sometimes I feel like I win the battle. Sometimes I feel like I lose. That date kind of felt like a draw. I don't really know why it was hard that day. But here's what I wasn't. Surprised. I may not like it, but the scriptures are clear. I'm still going to wrestle with my flesh, and I have the Holy Spirit to help me but it is hard and it is a battle. And I'm going to channel my dad here for a minute because we need some realism and I really want to be a dreamer. (laughs) We're in heaven, it's easy, it's all great. And it's not. There's some good news, there's some bad news, and then there's some realistic news. And the realistic news is that on your flight of sanctification, you are going to face a variety of battles. You're going to want it to be a beach vacation. And I'm not saying every day is the worst. It's really not. But some days it's really hard, and I do not want you to be caught off guard. Because I love the text too much not to be honest, and I love you too much not to be honest. Because in those days when the battle is hard, or weeks, or months, we begin to think something is wrong with either God or Christianity because it's hard sometimes. And it's not. Or we begin to think something is wrong with us. And don't get me wrong, I'm a sinner, and there may be many things wrong with me. But that specific day, why it was hard, 
I hadn't done anything uniquely to bring it on. It was just hard that day. And we need to expect the battle. Why? So that you can keep fighting. So that you will not turn the flight around. So you will not give up. And so that you can fly as successfully as you possibly can. Because Romans 8, Romans 8, 6 tells us, there is life and peace to be had. Am I full of life and peace with Jesus? Absolutely I am. But sometimes it takes a fight to actually even get an experience and remain in that. And I need for us to expect the battle so that we can be ready to fight. Verse 24 says what I think, wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death. There is a guaranteed deliverance and there is a guaranteed deliverer with you on your flight helping you, guiding you in more ways than you can comprehend. And yet I, as a sinner, a wretched sinner, I yearn for deliverance from my sin. I'll read for you verse 25. But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Here's the thing. Jesus really does free me. He really does empower me. I really am not alone. He frees me to fight the flesh. I really genuinely do delight in him. I really do humbly serve him. Those things are also very true of me. But I've got to never lose sight of him. I've got to never lose sight of that hope. I've got to never lose sight of that power never lose sight of that security, never lose sight of that calling because that is the helper for me on my flight. That's what enables me to be honest about what I'm really wrestling with. That's where the truth comes from, the renewal, the power comes from for me able to grow in this flight of sanctification. I've asked for some kind of deep thinking and some heart work today, I understand that. Um, I've asked you to look at your sin, which doesn't sound like a super fun thing to do. And to be honest, there was a part, times in my life, I don't look at my sin perfectly now, but it was really hard for me to do that because I didn't feel free to do that because I felt like somehow I could hide it from Jesus or I felt like somehow if I admitted how bad I was, then I was going to have to like earn my salvation. And here's what Romans 1 through 6 has been building to from now. You are saved by grace through faith in Jesus, period. You're allowed to see your sin and have Jesus show it to you because you know he already knows. You already know, and you're not saved because of it. We've already established you can't be saved because of it. But if you look at it, and Jesus helps you look at it, then there is an opportunity to address the obstacle and be free and to grow in Christ, to grow in sanctification and to experience the peace and life that I think you want so that your flight is successful. And I've really tried to be honest to kind of tee up Romans chapter eight, which is coming next week. This is just one of the best passages in all of the Bible. And my hope is that you'll spend a little bit of time being honest about what your sin is and what your obstacles are on your flight of sanctification. And then my hope is you will run to Romans 8 and you will find the truth there that will be helpful for you on your flight. 
you will find the specific things about your identity in Christ that you will get to walk in. You will see and know and love Jesus and his spirit will be able to change you. And you can actually do this sanctification flight well, having addressed the obstacles that are there. Praise God, I'm saved just by grace through faith. There would be no hope for me otherwise. Because of Jesus, I am free. Pray with me. Jesus, I am beyond grateful for what you have done for me and for anyone who believes in you. What a gift, free gift, your salvation is. I need your help in my sanctification process, and every woman here does too. Would you gently and kindly point out the obstacles that we are facing on our growth and sanctification and our authentic walk with you? And will you then point us to the truth, Holy Spirit, change our hearts to love what you love and to walk as fully and freely in the joy and peace that you have given us that we don't deserve but are so grateful for. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.